1: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. In light of news of the Omicron variant of COVID detected in several countries across the globe and first reported by health officials in South Africa, it's become clear that the COVID pandemic is still evolving. With a wide gap between the vaccinated and unvaccinated in high and upper middle class and low income countries, Vaccine inequality is the main reason the World Health Organization is predicting 200 million more cases on top of the 260 million so far. Several African Union and South African health officials, as well as other public health experts, place some blame on the world's failure to vaccinate in an equitable and urgent manner and on vaccine hoarding by high-income countries. I'll ask Dr. Ingrid Katz, the Associate Faculty Director at the Harvard Global Health Institute, if those officials have a point and why it matters. Now, equity is also top of mind in the United States. Early on, President Biden said racial equity was high on his administration's agenda. That gave hope to affordable housing advocates who had often felt shunned aside for other social policy priorities. If the president's Build Back Better package passes, housing advocates will celebrate the almost $150 billion dollars Devoted to remedying inequities left by the country's history of discriminatory housing practices. If the bill that passes the Senate includes that amount, it would be historic. Marsha Fudge, the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, has been sharing the message about infrastructure investments that include public housing rehabilitation and rental vouchers and what it would all mean for American families. Secretary Fudge joins this episode of Equal Time. But first, we turn to Dr. Ingrid Katz of the Harvard Global Health Institute to help make sense of fast-moving developments on the newest COVID variant and how vaccine equity is playing a role in the latest stage of the pandemic. Well, welcome to Equal Time, Dr. Katz. Thank you. Yeah, I know the world is just of course a little bit on the edge now uh, with the new variant. So already the blame game has started. So we have health and government officials in South Africa and other African countries have accused other countries of penalizing them for detecting the Omicron variant of the COVID virus with travel sanctions. So there's news now that it was actually detected in Europe before. Does it matter where the variant first emerged?
0: I am of the mindset it doesn't matter where the variant emerged, and honestly, I feel like that sometimes plays into the blame game of kind of who to point a finger to, and what really matters is where is the variant now, and how far has it spread, because I think that's the most critical piece in terms of wrapping our arms around this and having a sense of of how widespread this is.
1: Yeah, well, um, are travel bans a correct approach to stemming the contagion?
0: I really don't think fundamentally travel bans are very effective here. I think travel bans can work in very limited contexts when you know exactly where a given outbreak is occurring and you can get there quickly enough to essentially intercede. But when you have um, a virus like COVID or SARS-CoV-2 that's incredibly contagious, and is transmitted when someone is asymptomatic, which is really the sticking point, then essentially it has an ability to propagate all over the world very quickly without us knowing where it is. And by the time you put in a travel ban, essentially the cat's already out of the bag. It's, it's everywhere. So it, in my opinion, it really isn't very effective at this point.
1: Uh, So you're saying it's probably already here in the United States. I think so.
0: I think so. And I think part of the challenge is how much surveillance we are doing. We did have a ramp up um, after the current administration, the Biden administration, took over. They did invest more money. We were doing um, surveillance on maybe, I want to say, 0.05% of viruses detected before January of this year, we're now up to about closer to 10%, which is good. But you can imagine when a virus is widely circulating, it's very easy to miss a variant. And so I will not be surprised at all if this variant is already in the US and we just um, will be detecting it, you know, as it becomes more prevalent.
1: Some international public health officials, such as yourself, have placed at least a little of the blame for the evolution of a new variant on the world's failure to vaccinate in an equitable and urgent manner, or on vaccine hoarding by high-income countries. Uh, is that a problem? And is the problem production of the vaccine or distribution? What, what, what is your case on that? Yeah, I
0: think, unfortunately, it's, it's a combination of both. What I will say is that Operation Warp Speed, which was essentially the program that was put in place by the U.S. government to um, stimulate the rapid production of of vaccines, um, essentially baked in inequity right from the get-go. And so countries that had um, high enough GDPs to afford it essentially were able to purchase doses or pre-purchase doses of the vaccine before they even came to market. And so these are called advanced market commitments. And essentially wealthy countries were able to buy this up so that when we had vaccines that were proven to be efficacious in clinical trials, these countries essentially were able to quickly get Large stockpiles of these vaccines in high income countries and essentially purchased enough vaccine for their population, and low income nations essentially were left out of this initial bargaining. So, there was a coalition of um, multinationals put together to try to address this, and they developed a program called COVAX to essentially try to fill in the holes for lower income nations to try to get them the vaccines that they needed. Unfortunately, um, that hasn't really come through in the way that we had hoped, both for um, the goals that they had set and also to even reach those milestones. So it's it's been a frustrating situation. It's it's multiple factors at play, but I would say when you build in inequity right from the get-go, this is what you're gonna see.
1: You know how when you get on the plane and, and the flight instruct uh, the flight attendant says, you know, put your, if you're with a small child, put the oxygen mask on yourself first so then you can be able to effectively help others. Do you think, isn't it kind of a natural response for nations such as the United States to vaccinate their own uh, first and make sure that they have enough vaccines before they turn to looking outward to other nations? Is it, what do you think of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would argue it doesn't have to be either or. I mean, I think the way that we can reconceptualize healthcare globally is by thinking about these situations before we need the oxygen mask so that mm. we have ways to ensure that everyone can get their oxygen masks on simultaneously. And so when we think about all of the constraints and all of the bottlenecks that we've seen in this current pandemic, we have to really unpack them and address them when we are not in a global emergency. And that includes obviously resource constraints are important to consider, but production is right at the forefront. We do have a tremendous investment in um, the biomedical science and the United States continues to lead in this development, but we haven't invested in public health infrastructure in the U.S. or globally. And so what happens in these situations is, I I tend to say, we just shine a light on the inequities that were already there. But what if we could set up a situation where when these oxygen masks come down, all the powers that come to be ensure that everyone can put them on simultaneously, we have the capacity within countries already there to quickly manufacture these. We can have tech transfers right away in place so that we can have safe and effective ways to ramp up production right in people's home countries instead of waiting for very few manufacturing sites that are available in the U.S. to distribute them globally. That's the type of forward thinking we need to address these types of pandemics. And unfortunately, this is not going to be a once-every-hundred-year event. Hmm. Yeah, I noticed the fact
1: that South Africa and their Uh, technical expertise detected this and their health officials showed that they are, they have the capacity for a lot of innovation. uh, And that's why they said that they were penalized actually for being good at what they do. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I know you've worked in sub-Saharan Africa in trying to eradicate HIV. Right. So I want to ask what lessons from working there on HIV come into play with COVID?
0: Yeah. Great question. I mean, I would say we globally, I say all of us, have learned so much from the HIV pandemic, which is why, sadly, it, it's doubly painful to see inequities play out again in this way. I mean, one of the reasons that South Africa actually has this technology is because of the HIV pandemic, that they have invested in surveillance and other ways to stay connected to their partners and neighbors in sub-Saharan Africa. They got this sample from Botswana. There's a lot of open communication transparency is absolutely key when you're fighting any global pandemic.
1: Does race come into this at all? you know, and, and going back to the previous point that uh, South Africa and other countries, instead of being applauded for the detection, the first response was pointing a finger by the West. Um, so in your research uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and in sort of your looking at the challenges in dealing with HIV and
0: COVID, what role would you say race plays? I mean, I, I don't think you could possibly say it doesn't. I mean, just to even say that sub-Saharan Africa was essentially isolated, whereas Europe, where you know there are clearly cases being detected, has no travel ban. Um, I mean, it's mind-boggling. There's racism that is unfortunately part of all of this. And again, I say that pandemics of this nature shine a spotlight on inequities that are already there. So racism, um, poverty, food insecurity, injustices that are committed globally just get magnified. So in this context, I mean, I I have a very hard time believing that it isn't racist to essentially isolate Sub-Saharan Africa whereas travel continues to flow throughout other regions of the world. And I think, again, we can look at our own country and look at our history and legacy of racism, and then we can talk about vaccine inequities that are happening here. So we don't have to look halfway across the world to see this play out. Unfortunately, it's right here in our own backyard.
1: I want to turn a little bit to some solutions. Now, there seems to be a bit of hoarding on the part of wealthy nations. One company uh, did an analysis, and they estimated that there were 50 million doses about to expire. So how does the world do better moving forward? And what specifically does the United States need to
0: do? Well, those are great questions, and I think a lot of us are trying to think Creatively, as in terms of both how to look at this moment, but also how to plan ahead. So I think it's really it's a two pronged approach, because I think we need to be thinking about this moment right now and how we can quickly address the inequities that are occurring. So that means, of course, that we are ensuring that vaccines get ramped up. It means tech transfers have to be taking place to ensure that. Countries that are able to ramp up quickly, like South Africa, they actually have the capacity to manufacture vaccines, but they have the information they need, the blueprint essentially to make those vaccines. We also need to ensure that we're going the last mile in all of these countries. A lot of people have said to me, why, you know, South Africa has all the vaccines they need. They're, they're just too vaccine hesitant. That's the problem. We need to be going the last mile and partnering with communities as we should here in the US to ensure that we are addressing their concerns because vaccine hesitancy is actually a very rational response to injustices that people have suffered. And so we need to be understanding what those are and ensure that we're responding appropriately. And then, of course, we have to be making sure that people have access to. Healthcare if they do get sick. And then basic public health practices. You know, I said to someone, this isn't rocket science. I have been teaching in person at Harvard College all semester and there have been no cases of transmission in my classroom and there are 80 students in there. And that's because we are all vaccinated, we are all masked, and we are all tested every week. And if you have those pieces in place, you can do pretty darn well. You can actually be in person, but you need those pieces in place.
1: Mm-hmm. And that even includes a lot of people have brought up the storage issue, that we should make sure that those uh, that part of the infrastructure is in place. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, what are the policy solutions? I like that you're always looking forward to saying, okay, okay this is something that's going to happen again. We have to have some policy solutions in place because vaccines and COVID itself have all become intertwined with politics. So has that made it difficult to do your work when you're trying to do these long-range plans? And
0: how actually has it affected your work? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I'm trained as a physician, but I also have training in public health and my heart is really in public health. And I think, unfortunately, in this context public health has become highly politicized and I'm talking really basic public health strategies like masking, you know, where there are certain places even here living in Cambridge, we have a masking ordinance, which means when you go into a grocery store, when you go in to get that coffee, you're wearing a mask. If I go a few miles up the road to a different town, they don't have it. That's completely chaotic. So you have no idea even in the state of Massachusetts, what, the rules of the road are. So, I think we need, when it comes to global pandemics, you need federal responses. And I think, unfortunately, from the get go, this was left to states, counties, and it became a real patchwork of a response. And I think we've had a consistent underfunding and under recognition of the need for public health infrastructure in this country. And this is how that will play out. We have departments of public health that don't even have the capacity to staff just the few people they need in that place. And that leaves people sorely underprepared and underprotected. And so I think these are exactly the type of things that we should be addressing when we are not in an emergency, that we need to be lobbying our Congress people to say, hey, you know what? We need to fund public health in this country. We need to invest in public health the way we've invested in technology and biomedical science. This is another piece of the puzzle that's been unfortunately forgotten and neglected for decades.
1: Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting because so many of these public health workers throughout the country and even in the world, uh, they have seen pushback from the public. And so people aren't as anxious to go into that piece, that line of work.
0: Unfortunately, and I mean, you know, so many people I know have been harassed. They've received death threats. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. And as someone who's gone into this field, you you never imagine that is exactly what you're going to be. You're you're, you're thinking about the potentially life threatening viruses you may encounter. And I trained in infectious mm-hmm. diseases. You don't think you're really going to be receiving death threats for asking people to put on a mask. And I think that has been mm-hmm. a really unfortunate outcome of this of this time.
1: Has it affected you and your work personally?
0: I think the part that's been most painful for me is as someone who's been invested in responding to the HIV pandemic for, you know, decades, really, to see this all play out again, I just keep asking, do we not learn anything from the HIV pandemic about how to address these social inequities? And sometimes I just feel like, you know, we... We have so few voices that are, that are, you know, crying out for equity here and for addressing so many of these disparities. And, and it breaks my heart. And we're seeing it over and over again. I think that's the part that's been hardest for me personally.
1: Yeah, well, as you look at this world situation now and the world is on edge and um, you are trying to plan into the future, I really want to ask you, what question have I not asked? that I should have, because you really think you, the world needs to hear what you have to say on the issue.
0: I would say, um, people need to ask themselves why we are now over two years into this pandemic. And while we are certainly far along in our science, why are we really not that much better off in, in how we're doing in terms of this of controlling this virus? Why have we not been able to move on? People need to ask themselves that and then they need to have a voice. They need to stay active in their in, in the political sphere because unfortunately public health has become political and people need to be raising their voice and demanding justice and justice needs to come in the form of equity. And so, if we really want to come through this time together, we cannot come through it alone. We cannot just put on our own oxygen mask and hope the person next to us can figure out how to put theirs on. That's not the way this is going to work because it's a transmissible virus. That's how it goes. So, I would just say, I would maybe instead ask your listeners, why are we still here? Why are we still here? We're about to start the third year now as we enter. 2022, how is this still happening? We know a lot from the science, but the scientists have done a tremendous job. We need to be doing better for public health.
1: I'd like to ask you, Dr. Katz, um, in terms of vaccine equity uh, and getting a global effort, how do you get all the different nations to work together on this? Yeah,
0: uh, it's a great question. And I think it's come up if we think about Um, the recent um, meetings on climate change, we could ask the same question. How are you going to ask nations to put the global needs in front of their own individual nation state? Um, I would argue that is the only way we address huge challenges like this one. And we have seen it play out in many ways, and I'm talking very specifically about Omicron here, where we had this conversation that was happening between Botswana and South Africa. Now, one could have said, if I were the, um, the leader of Botswana, I might say, you know what? I don't really wanna share this with you because it's going to show that someone has this variant here in our country, and that's gonna look bad for me. I don't want the world to know this. Or South Africa could have said, Uh, we're going to point the finger at you guys. You know, we're going to pass the blame, but instead they have developed a partnership largely because they have responded to the HIV epidemic as a part as in partnership. And that's what we need. We need more partnerships. Will they be completely global in nature? I, I probably find that hard to believe, but could they be wide and regional? Absolutely. And I think we need to remind people they're much stronger together than they are when they fall apart.
1: Thank you so much for that. That's a good message for this holiday season as well, if folks would take it to heart. So I want to thank you, Dr. Ingrid Katz, uh, for uh, coming on Equal Time and I think giving the folks, uh, giving our Equal Time listeners some good advice and some hope moving forward. Uh, You've also given them some prescriptions on what they need to do. So thank you, Dr. Ingrid Katz, for appearing on Equal
0: Time. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And now we turn to HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge to discuss housing priorities for the Biden administration. Welcome to Equal Time, Secretary Marsha Fudge.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. Well, thank you. Uh, how does $150 billion devoted to housing in this reconciliation bill fit into the administration's larger goal of achieving equity, uh, particularly in light of the legacy of past discrimination in housing?
2: It is life-changing. It literally is life-changing. When you consider the fact that we have never made this kind of an investment in housing in the history of this country, think about what it will do for the average person. Today, there is no place in this country where housing is truly affordable because we have such a lack of supply. So, the first thing we're going to do is increase supply by building more than 1 million new housing units. That will immediately bring the cost of housing down and provide people more opportunities. Today, We live in a nation where the gap between black and white ownership, home ownership is the same as it was in 1968. We have to find ways to reinvent the housing market so that uh, black people and poor people and other people of color have a real opportunity to own their own home and to create wealth. So some of the things that this bill is going to allow us to do, number one is provide down payment assistance. We know that most people can afford rent. It is not the rent that is the problem or the mortgage, it is getting into the home with the down payment assistance. So we're gonna provide hundreds of millions of down payment assistance. We also are looking at how we approach rehabilitating communities by starting to allow, and this is something that HUD can do on its own even, is to start to provide more low dollar loans so that we can start to rehabilitate streets, Communities and get people on the lower perspective, the lower rung of the the payment scale, the ability to get into houses right away. Uh, The other thing that we are doing is providing a lot more uh, vouchers so that people who are homeless have an opportunity. But most importantly, what we're doing is making sure that we can provide decent public housing. We are going to increase the number of housing that is available. We're going to assist people in getting in the homes and staying in them. We are reducing interest rates. We are doing everything we know how to do to make this market fair for every American, and that's what 150 billion dollars will do. Well, I, you mentioned
1: rental vouchers, and if it the bill passes the Senate with the housing money intact, it looked like it has uh, $25 billion included for the vouchers, which would be the biggest expansion of the program since the 1960s. But it's really been members of Congress, particularly the House, that have pushed to include it in the bill. Uh, and there have been studies that say it's going to make a big difference. But will the administration and your department push so it doesn't
2: get lost in negotiations? Oh, absolutely. We're fighting for it every day. We're talking about what amounts to about 200,000 vouchers. So, yes, we are very, very supportive of it, as is the White House. Now, clearly, we can't say what will happen in the Senate, but we're fighting for a lot of things. Trust that there are a lot of issues that we're going to have to be standing strong on. Uh, But we feel good about it.
1: Oh, so you do feel good about it. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about HUD itself, because the federal government, their permanent staff grew by about 11 percent from 2008 to t- 2017, and HUD in that time lost 18.5 percent of its full-time permanent staff, okay? And so um, morale also dropped, we know, under the previous administration. So will there be money uh, enough for administration in the bill so that HUD can oversee the distribution of the money and resources.
2: We have put in a request for salaries uh, as well, not just for in-house HUD, but the, the kind of um, a civic participation we have to have. Because one of the problems, just think about it this way. One of the major problems we had with the emergency rental assistance is that there was not the capacity on the ground in terms of just bodies and skill set to get mm-hmm. the resources through. So we're looking at salaries inside and outside. As well as we have put in our both our next two budgets. So the president's budget has a, a request for an increase in salaries, our budget has an increase, and there are resources and build back better. So we're yeah. taking three shots at this. Uh,
1: well, when you have, if you get these resources, you'll need people to implement them. <laughs> exactly so, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Now, why does it seem always, uh, you know, you hear about other departments in the cabinet. Why does it seem that HUD traditionally has been relegated to being a second tier agency in the minds of some? I think that
2: there are a lot of people who um, just did not consider the work we did at the same level as others. But let me just say this to you. It truly is a new day. HUD is growing we are getting stronger every day. Our staff is getting stronger every day. You're going to hear so much from HUD because when you talk about equity, you have to talk about housing. If you can't put a decent roof over somebody's head, you can't talk about equity. You can, you. can It's hard to even feed people if they don't have a home. So people know that the center of equity is the basic necessities. That is a roof over your head and food in your stomach. And this administration clearly understands that. And so we have been elevated in a lot of ways. Uh, but we're not the people who, over the past three or four years, have requested a decrease in our budget. We know we're We know we have a lot of work to do, and we are going to do it. The previous administration, uh, some of parts of the Fair Housing
1: Act were, were basically, they said, well, it's social engineering. So uh, I know now that you've recommitted to those pieces of uh, implementing housing policy. How will that make a difference and how will the bill help?
2: Well, there, uh, there are resources to address uh, fair housing in terms of even just putting in place what we have now. We've got about $20 million right now that we actually have available to assist communities and others to bring fair housing actions because we know fair housing has, it's not social engineering, it is the law. That is what it is. It is the law. And we intend to follow it because we know that when we don't, what happens is that people who have always been left out, who have never been on a level playing field, continue to be Left out of the process, and so we have to make sure that we can bring everybody on board to give everybody a fair shot. So fair housing, we are beefing up our our office of fair housing. We're bringing on some of the best people you can possibly imagine, and we are not playing about this. We are going to make sure that people follow the law. So I, I want to ask you:
1: Are there any other issues that our listeners should know about on what the bill would mean when it comes to moving the needle on housing progress in this country?
2: The number of housing that we're going to build, high speed internet and rail, which, you know, was in the bipartisan infrastructure plan. But now we're talking yes. about eliminating lead in paint. We have so super funds. Think about climate. You know, I mean, black people oftentimes don't think, you yeah, know, climate's not important. But who lives near super fund sites? Who is affected by storms like Ida? Who is affected by floods in inner cities? It is us. So the climate change and resiliency, which is going to be about $50 billion, is a tremendous win for us as well. So there are lots of things. Those are just some of the biggest things I think that we need to think about, but there's so much more. What would you say to folks who say, is that infrastructure, when
1: you talk about things uh, like uh, you know, childcare and other pieces of the bill, that, that they're part of, has been,
2: has been called human infrastructure? Infrastructure is a foundation. If you look it up in the dictionary, and I haven't, but I would say to you that it is a foundation. When you build a foundation, you build it in a way that people can succeed. That means a stable place to live. That means not worrying where your next meal comes from every day. It means good schools. It means a lot of things, but what it means in its totality is the foundation to live a better life. So yes, it is infrastructure. All of it is, you just have to just think about it. 15 or 20 years ago, we would not have said that broadband or internet or high-speed internet was, was infrastructure. We wouldn't have said it. We weren't even thinking about the grid being infrastructure at that point. We weren't thinking about climate change being infrastructure at that point. We are moving into a new world, a new society that understands that how people live dictates what infrastructure is, not what people have always thought it was. We can't live in the past. We have to live in the future.
1: Well, thank you. I know you have a hard stop, Secretary Fudge. I would like you to come back uh, and share some more after we look at the progress of the bill. But I do want to thank you for sharing news about uh, what's going on on the housing front with equal time listeners, Secretary Marsha
2: Fudge. Thank you so much for having me. I'll come back, promise.
1: So, what's keeping me up at night? My favorite holiday specials. They started to be broadcast and I'm here for them. Well, some of them anyway. But is their message passé? For instance, would Scrooge be considered a hero or a fool for changing and growing instead of doubling down on his awfulness? In Washington political circles, I would be afraid to ask. I write about it in my roll call column this week. Check it out. Now, Equal Time listener Martin says climate change is on his mind. Why aren't we treating it as an emergency when we know that despite rules and regulations, laws and fences, climate is fueling migration, much of it to our borders? Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.